0: Welcome to episode 12 of the Football Shirt Pod, we're back with a fascinating interview with Simon Clifford, the man who befriended Janino when he moved to Teesside, introduced futsal to the UK, taught Kira Knightley how to play football and even got Socrates to turn out for his own non-league football club. Let's hear what he had to say. So, Simon, you have um, an extraordinary um, and actually, a, and with all due respect, a slightly weird football story to tell because you were the, the kind of school teacher who became friends with Janinho in the mid-90s. You introduced Brazilian-style coaching and, of course, futsal to, to England. Owned and managed a semi-pro football team, I think, and uh, gave a, an appearance to a certain Brazilian called Socrates. Worked with Gareth Bale and Theo Walcott at Southampton being consulted on f- a number of football uh, related films um, and now your latest project which we'll come on to in a bit is around uh, kind of helping coach players to become the kind of super f- honed footballers of the future have I, have I missed anything with the, it with, the, with that very brief run through
1: not too much that's about it I think
0: <laughs> okay well let's can we start with Janinho um, uh, or, or perhaps just that kind of that period around juninho um, coming to England and and um, I think you were, you were a teacher in Teesside at the time, is that is that right? But you had a, a passion for football and and for thinking about football in a slightly, I guess, kind of progressive way, is that is that fair to say?
1: Yeah, I was actually a teacher in Leeds, but I'm from Teesside. Right. I grew up uh, loving Middlesbrough Football Club, I think my first game was aged four or five, and um, then ended up going with my neighbour who was a season ticket holder and, and, and took me with him and loved everything about football I loved the community coming together I loved the, I loved skillful players um, I think if you're introduced to football at a young age it has this this effect it is the world's greatest game and uh, yeah. it certainly bowled me over and um, so Middlesbrough became my love and uh, playing football did and later on in life I, I did a sports degree and took components of, of that degree that related to to football and then became a teacher and um, a PE teacher but had a big interest in coaching and I was trying to, to, for the children that I was working with, I was trying to find best solutions to give them the most useful techniques and exercises to improve themselves so I started looking abroad Yeah, as well as liking Borough, I, I fell in love with the 82 Brazil came when, team when that came along.
0: Well, I was, I, was, I was going to say, just to jump in there, because I guess Middlesbrough, no offence to Middlesbrough, but Middlesbrough in what, are we talking the kind of early 80s, mm-hmm. uh, weren't perhaps the most technically gifted football team in the world, is that fair to say?
1: We, but- had, we had some great players, you know, I, be- okay. I began in the um, mid to late 70s, we had Graeme Souness, then we had David oh, Hutchins, who went to Middlesbrough, Mark Proctor, yeah. Craig Johnson, my yeah. favourite player was a guy called... Until I saw the Brazilians in 82, my favourite player was a guy called Terry Cochran. Right. He was a winger. Um, show, socks down, shirt out. Number yeah. seven, did step overs. Yeah. I loved him. And before seeing the Brazil 82 team, he was the probably the most skillful player that I'd, that I'd ever seen. So it, for me, all about Middlesbrough. had this affinity with Brazil. Yeah, And I wrote to our FA to try and get some information on the coaching in Brazil and how they went about the education of players there. And they more or less said that they're naturals in Brazil and there's, there's possibly no secret to it. And so there you go. Juninho signs for Middlesbrough. And I couldn't believe that we at Middlesbrough had a Brazilian player playing for us. Yeah, I couldn't believe it was the Brazil number 10. He was South American player of the year. And so for a kind of research, after I finished my degree, I almost did a PhD in football and yeah, Instead, became a teacher. My wife was a couple of years older than me. wasn't keen on me carrying on studying, and so I ended up teaching. But the the football thing carried on for me. And so, from a research point of view, really, I wanted to I wanted to meet him.
0: Okay. And how did that how did that meeting come about between you and Genini?
1: Well, um, I contacted the club, who obviously were getting a lot of requests to see him and to know him and all the rest of it. And I was pretty lucky in that um, his father. With the players' families sat not too far away from the seat I was in in the same block <laughs> at the the Riverside <laughs> okay, Stadium. Yeah, so yeah. I, I just got talking to his dad one day. He invited me over to their house, and wow, it went from there.
0: Amazing. So, so he, was his Dad, but uh, did his dad move over with him when he when he joined Borough?
1: Yes, his. The uh, mum came, Lucia, Osvaldo, uh, the sister Gislaine. It was a real wow family affair with Janinho. They were a tremendous family unit and a good example to other players of I think how having a a strong family behind you can be really important and even Janino ended up coming back to Middlesbrough yeah two other occasions three times in total but every time right up until he was 30 his family was with him well there's certainly some composure about this Middlesbrough side they don't look like a team next to bottom of the table do they and he gets into a good position here and so is Janino. he's going to finish this one Juninho for Middlesbrough, beautifully created. No emotion from the manager, but what a blow Middlesbrough struck here on 15 minutes. Craig Hignett drove in, Juninho with a side foot, Schmeichel had no hope. Juninho and I linked up together in 96 and up to that point Brazil was the uh, they were the most successful team in, in, in football history with the the four World Cups up to that point. They later got five. I think they played it better. Their players moved differently. Still, although Brazil isn't doing quite so well in international football, we still have Brazilian players across the top teams in Europe. I still think the South American is, is, the, is the best player in the world, the best attacking player. So I, I wanted to know how, at what age they first got in contact with the ball yeah. What they did with it, what type of games they played. My degree, which was sport, had told me that we needed to maybe use small-sided games in order to teach, in order to first give an entry point to to kids into games like football, into other other in, in invasion games like rugby. Yeah. And so when I saw when I saw back in the day what the FA were doing in terms of their coaching courses, I thought. Well, from what I'm learning academically, I think there's maybe a different way to go about this. And so I wanted to know from him how he developed. And when you see Brazilian players move, they move differently to mm. certainly then differently to to, 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 to players in England. We were England; it was a very dark dark uh, period. Yeah. We'd just come come off the back of not qualifying for the '94 World Cup. Yeah, um, we didn't have too many other than Gascoigne. We didn't have too many. Okay, we did we did all right in Euro '96, but. I think every home nation up to that point more or less had got to the semi-finals. Yeah. But uh, yeah, I wanted to know all of that so we quickly became friends. I think his dad because I was a teacher was keen to for me to have him as a friend. He'd, he broke through in Brazil at a club called Ituano then being signed, signed by Telly Santana the great coach of Brazilian 82 and 86 at São Paulo where he won a world club championships. Yeah. And was the hot property in Brazilian football but there's a lot of hype around players. There's a lot of pressure in Brazil, a lot of people. And I think when Janino, when Osvaldo got into Middlesbrough, I think he didn't, he wanted him to be kind of steady. And so he didn't really know any of the other footballers. They couldn't obviously speak Portuguese. He didn't speak English at the time. I set up, I set myself a task of learning it double quick, which I got really? the basics Yeah, in a, right. in a few months. Yeah. And so I spent most nights... There at his house, and we just talk football till about eleven o'clock at night. It was really? a, a wonderful period.
0: That's amazing because he's he's um he's a bright guy, as an Very, yeah, yeah, different.
1: yeah, yeah yeah. yeah,
0: yeah. And it must—I mean—that's one of those transfers. Actually, I remember at the time thinking, you know, there's certain transfers in the kind of, I guess, Premier League history that 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 stood out because they, I guess, they kind of. Took the league in a slightly different direction. I'm thinking, you know, probably Bergkamp. Even actually going back as far as Klinsmann was an unusual one. Um, perhaps um, Juan Sebastian Veron when he came, because it was he was you know a player at the peak of his power from what was then the, probably the strongest league in the world in in Italy. Um, and then Janino is always one that kind of came from nowhere, and it sort of set the the tone I guess for a, a kind of new style I guess in the Premier League or certainly a kind of move to a, um, the kind of pace had, had moved towards foreign players but it kind of quickened the pace and it, he was a top level player as well and it was such an odd transfer though wasn't it it's such a strange one because he was as you said the, the sort of hottest property or well, one of them in world football at the time
1: it was a Brazilian record transfer at the time we, we might laugh it at really? it, but wow. yeah it was 4.75 million which then was a record later broke by Danielson to, Bet- to Betis oh, yeah, who went yeah. for also from San Paulo, But at the time, um, I remember Paul Heywood writing in the Telegraph. He said, forget Cantona, Burkamp, Klinsman even. This is the big one. He said, because the other guys that we've had have been somewhere else. It's maybe worked out in this country. We're getting a young player here yeah. at the peak of his powers. Henry Winter beautifully wrote, Like the beacons on the hills, let the bells ring out. Tell every child to wear a smile. The dispatches from Sao Paulo carry unbelievable tidings. Brazil's number 10 is coming to England. Big, <laughs> big page. So yeah. it, it was. And his first season was very tricky because yeah. the team were, were playing in one style. We had a, we had a reasonable team developing who got promotion under Brian Robson, Nicky Barmby, uh, Jan Fiotov. They were trying to play football. But when Janinho came in in the October, November of 95, the ball was in the air still a lot and he found that first season very difficult it was only in season 2 when in the summer Middlesbrough signed Emerson who was then Portuguese Player of the Year Mm. and I think the reason that Bobby Robson left Porto was due to them selling Emerson to to, to Middlesbrough yeah and then then we got Fabrizio Ravinelli who just scored the winner in the Champions League final and it changed the style changed then the formation changed we went to a 4-3 1-2 yep Janino being the one between the two. Yeah. And it was an amazing roller coaster season. There's an incredible book just being wrote on it, actually, by a guy called Tom Flight. I don't know him, but he's done an incredible job uh, reliving that season. We got to two cup finals, played unbelievable football at times, but also got relegated. We didn't turn up to a match against Blackburn. Blackburn, that's right. uh,
0: Yeah, yeah, I remember I they get relegated in the last day of the season at, at Leeds. I just remember Leeds. G Giannino's sitting and on the pitch and uh uh kind of sobbing. I've just funny enough, I was just watching uh recently the one of the Gary Neville soccer box interviews. I don't know if you've seen any of those. They're very good actually. But he, yeah, good. The, yeah, one with Zola and he was talking about um how football was just changing at that point and, and something you just touched on. It was but before the kind of 94, 95, 96, it was English clubs played four four two. You had two wingers, two central midfielders, um, but suddenly players like Janino and Zola and Bergkamp, they were different players and and they were that good that teams were would, would now starting to change their formation to accommodate them. And it was yes. it was a, a kind of watershed moment, I guess, in many ways in English football at that point. Um, but it's interesting you were talking there about contacting the FA and, and that period being quite, bleak actually for English football because I know Italian 90 obviously England did very well um and Euro 96 it's, it's hard to kind of know how good that team was I guess because we were mm. on home soil but mm. but but football wasn't great and, and 80s British football in the 80s was towards certainly towards the end of the 80s was a a, a bit dark wasn't it we we're out of obviously out of Europe as well um and you know how, how kind of I guess I wonder how what the sort of reaction was to you kind of asking these questions about what the FA were doing um Andy you 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 found a great quote from Howard Wilkinson didn't you about the kind of reaction to futsal as a as a, a kind of coaching method.
2: Yeah, hey Simon, Andy here. I work with uh, Josh at Colt Kits. Uh, yeah, I believe the exact quote was at the end of the day you have to play on a full-size pitch with a ball that bounces, which is quite extraordinary. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, that sounds like Sergeant Wilco. It was
1: a, it was it was a very different time and just from what I experienced, it was a difficult period for me in trying to do it. The FA is very different today. I have to say that the FA in itself, we can't fault the FA for anything because the FA is is an organisation. It's not, a, you know, it's made up of people. And human beings make mistakes and all the rest of it. But I think the changes the FA have brought in the last trip, Trevor Brook, him behind them, maybe two thousand nine ten on. We are up there development-wise now. We're the best in the world. Back then it was different. And... It was very closed minded. I had a lot of resistance once I set up my soccer schools. And I mean, Janillo arranged a trip for me out to Brazil. I went out to Brazil in the summer of 97. I stayed in a cockroach infested <laughs> sports stadium at the University of Sao Paulo, but I was in heaven. <laughs> I go for a shower, there's cockroach on, on wow. the, in the room everywhere. Listen, I was in heaven. <laughs> I was in football heaven. Yeah. I walked out of my. The stadium I was staying in, San Paulo Football Club training there, the kids watching. It was brilliant. Amazing. Met Zico, Rivellino, Careca, heroes of mine. I came back from that trip and I asked everybody in Brazil, I said, why does Brazil do so well? They told me all two or three answers each. But futsal was always in the, the top two or three. Yeah. And Juninho had said to me, one day I was in the car with him, and he said to me, Is Manchester United? Training the same as Middlesbrough is that is, is, is it the whole sort of thing? I said they've got better players. I said I, I said I, I think it is. I said uh, you know we've obviously got Brian here, who's a great man, but Brian's has, knows what he knows. Yeah. But it, I said he's come from Man United, and Janine says Increvel. Increvel. Yeah. incredible, incredible,
2: incredible,
1: incredible. Yes, but because he says even the smallest street corner club in Brazil has a better approach and structure to training than all seen here and. I went to Brazil. I thought to myself at the time, what a weird thing to say. When I went to Brazil, I saw he was right. And I came back from that trip. I thought, I've got to give my job up. I was obsessed with changing English football and bringing some of that here and felt like I had to do it. Within BBC came out to Brazil with me on that trip. Yeah. I was there about six, seven weeks. They made a documentary which Glenn Hoddle saw, who was the England manager. He sent uh, John Gorman down to meet me. Really? Uh, who was England assistant, yeah. and John said to me, we want you to get you to work with Graeme Lesseau. We need to treat, teach him a trick, we need to this. And his futsal said, when Glenn and I were at Swindon, we changed the Swindon kit to Brazil colours, hoping to get them playing like Brazil. He said, <laughs> you're, you're actually doing it the proper way. You want to get involved. <laughs> they asked me to set up a trip for them to Brazil,
2: really? like I had,
1: which yeah. I did. The FA then blocked that. Seriously, and there was all, yeah, there was all sorts of. I mean, Howard Wilkinson, again, is a tremendous person, and we have to give him credit for what we've got in Saint George's and all of that. But at yeah. that time, you know, I don't think the FA had been to Brazil and looked. And I was, you know, I, I mess Howard, um, and you know, basically said, "What do you think? Why don't we do this?" And you know, there was a bit of to in and fro in the press, and but they weren't they weren't into it at all, and. um I say a difficult time some clubs were great Colin Harvey at Everton Middlesbrough football clubs Man United had me in there uh, Newcastle really? so, yeah. so over the next years I got working with clubs in the the lower levels but yeah it was a different time
0: yeah so so you went out to Brazil seven to eight weeks and you're, you're meeting I mean football royalty at that point that must have been unbelievable
1: well it was it, I think it was six seven weeks the first trip in fact Juninho's dad organised me the trip first of all and he got it wrong He, I would have only gone for a week in 97 at okay. the time I didn't have a lot of money and yeah. that he'd messed this trip up type of thing was a bit of a disaster to me he'd sent me over there in what was carnival when there's <laughs> oh. no there's no football <laughs> yeah. so he only took he told me about a week before he said I've, uh, these dates said, it's all off and I was like well do I go anyway he says there's going to be nothing on so that was you know at the time you're like oh dear mate <laughs> but it, it ended up, I changed things and went for the whole summer holidays, and as I say, BBC ended up coming. I borrowed money then off the teaching union, and I didn't tell my wife, which was very bad of me, <laughs> <laughs> I borrowed five grand, yeah. and that funded me being out there all summer, and then I, I said to Giannino's, to Valdo one night at their house, I said, right, I'd like to meet, when I go, I'd like to meet Pele, Zico, Rivellino, Correca, <laughs> he's listening to me, yeah. and... He said, uh, "Simon, these these people is very busy." <laughs> <He> <laughs> says, My son is the number ten in Brazil. He he, he has not met these people. <laughs> but I was so full of enthusiasm and naivety, I I cracked on with it. Yeah. And, yeah. But getting there when I, I landed in Brazil, the first couple of days, it was raining in São Paulo, and there wasn't much. You know, I thought, "Oh, this is all not going to work." And then Janineo's a friend of theirs. Uh, like a bit of an agent type guy, he ended up assisting me and the press in Brazil got behind me, Folly de Sao Paulo, did about four articles on me, the big newspaper in Sao Paulo. Really? And then we had people asking to see me, they were like, and in fact, Sao Paulo Football Club said to me, we had the English FA here. I said, oh, well, I didn't think they've ever been. He said, no, we had the England's under-16s team. Right. He said, we, we beat them 4-0 and then said to them, he said, they came last year, the year before, we then said to them, do you want to see the training? or do you want to see how we train he said they went they went um, straight off to the airport so i i, I couldn't understand i mean yeah. even futsal futsal was known as a game it hadn't been joined up for its benefits outside of brazil mm. as a, as a key developer for 11-a-side football in fact in english speaking world it it wasn't and you Honestly, it's uh, the world has changed so much. I mean, we've got the internet. Obviously, we're sharing information. But that, that, then it was a real dark ages.
0: Yeah, no, definitely. I mean, I can I can remember playing, you know, junior football uh, from probably eight on full size pitches, uh, full size goals. You know, obviously the bigger players were the ones who were the best because they were Mm -hmm. bigger, more physically strong, quicker, Mm -hmm. could kick the ball further and higher and harder, and all the rest of it. And and you know that's even that that took a long time to change though. Um, and even when you're at that age and playing the game, you kind of thought this is a bit odd. Why are we, why are we? And, you, and and you're sort of aware. I was definitely aware when I was a, a kid playing football of coaching methods in Holland, for example, where yeah. you know I think kids were grouped on their size as opposed to their age, and you know, but but whether it is a sort of um, you know kind of unconscious arrogance perhaps on the part of of English football or the FA because we've, we've always claimed to own the game. I don't know, I'm not
1: for sure. sure. For sure there was that. And there was that even into the 90s. I mean, in various other ways, we had, the organisation I set up, we had great pressure from the FA. Um, some of it not too gentlemanly, if you like. Yeah. Trying to, you know, knobble us, if you like. It was insane when you're thinking, hang on, <laughs> you're not there to develop the game or to... But yeah. again, it's changed. Adam Crozier made changes when he came in. I mean, yeah,
2: yeah.
1: at the FA, he he got me involved on a national level with with the the. Uh, but you know that that period before that,
2: yeah.
1: um, it was a real and it, it was it was we're English. What can you? It was a little bit. Like, yeah. What can you? What can you teach us? Yeah, I myself stopped playing at football at yeah year nine. What we just call today year nine, yeah. because I was a dribbler, liked to do this, like to do that. And to be yeah. honest with you, I got fed up with being told to pass the ball and to this and to easy ball, all of them things. Yeah. I took, yeah. I ended up taking up taking up distance running.
2: Right. <laughs> um,
1: it didn't. be It wasn't fun to me. The reason I got into football personally yeah. was I found it exciting. I liked seeing Terry Cochran, a yeah. player taking on another player. I liked the Brazil team. And you can't have all dribblers. Yeah. But I was a number seven myself. I wanted to dribble and keep people on. And yeah. you, you know, you you could get you could get dropped from teams for. <laughs>
0: yeah.
1: You could get dropped seriously for, for for doing stuff like that.
0: Yeah. No, definitely. So, so in terms of the Brazilian soccer schools, what what were the, some of the were there any players that kind of came through that we might know of now?
1: Yeah, I mean, you've got even ones just come through the last, um, you know, the last couple of years. Uh, Oli McBurney. He came out of my own soccer... The first Brazilian soccer school that we had in um, Leeds. He was there with me in about 2004. Uh, The lad who's gone to Newcastle, is it Ryan Fraser? Yep. Uh, He's out of my soccer school in Aberdeen. Ah. Micah Richards, obviously. But there's... I mean, at Leeds United at the minute, you've got late young ones coming through. Uh, we had a fantastic soccer school in Harrogate, um, Brazilian soccer school. We've got coming from there, Ryan Edmondson, he's on loan at Aberdeen at the minute. Robbie Gotts, he's on loan at the minute, doing well at um, at uh, Lincoln. Yeah. But Forest Green, there's Liam Kitchen and somebody else I'm thinking from there. But the schools across the board, um, they started, I did the first one in 96, Lego backed us with a lot of money. We got a sponsorship of a million quid in 1999 um, off Lego and they went to the country. And so through the 2000s, it was planting the seeds. But if you look, you know, if you actually track it, um, it'd be good if Wikipedia did it or something, but they're popping up still everywhere, the kids that came out of that. And although I sold it in 2012, it's still... It's still going, and there's yeah. good, good good people running it and involved.
0: Yeah. So Micah Richards, you just mentioned. We, we reading up. Andy, but rather was reading up a bit about um, yeah you know, your career. And we, were, we were discussing discussing your kind of how you'd work with Michael Richards and his his dad as well. I think that's right, isn't it? And you'd kind of try to identify right. how he could kind of shape his career and the attributes the attributes he'd need.
1: So with Micah, I met him uh, fairly young and tried to help him in all aspects. Um, as well as the as well as the football and I suppose like you've just said there, even strategically, I would sit once a week with, with Link and his dad and we'd mm. try to plot maybe if we do this right and that goes okay for us where he could go next, whether that's suppose lifestyle wise, training wise or even um strategy you or know, position wise and yeah,
0: yeah. Because we read something interesting about how you you kind of s- spotted that there were some fairly strong centre backs playing for England. Yeah. But the right back position, Gary Neville, I think possibly coming towards the end of his career, and you kind of identified that as a, a spot that he could be working towards.
1: Yes, we did that in my office in Leeds mm. in one uh, afternoon in the early 2000s, whenever it would be, or maybe after, maybe a bit bit more after that. But yeah, I said to Lincoln. Um, if if he's going to get into England, because I'd, as I said, I'd backed Micah from quite a young age, and got involved with him from a young age, and uh, I remember he made his debut against France, uh, for under-16s England, yeah. fantastic, he scored on his debut with a header, and then it, after that, it all seemed to accelerate, next mm. thing is, he's playing in the reserves at Man City, I think Stuart Pearce was the coach at the time, and he was playing um, centre-back, he'd originally been a midfielder, and, one afternoon, I said to Lincoln, you know, and I'm sure Lincoln will have thought of this himself at some point as well, but I said to Lincoln, you know, look towards the right back. I said, because I've had a look at it. If we look forward, Ferdinand's not going anywhere, Terry isn't, and we're going to be waiting, waiting some time. But the way, it, the way it was starting to develop with the, the quickening, if you like, with Micah, Micah up to 11, 12, didn't have any clubs interested in him. Right. 14, he signs for Oldham. Say England debut uh, at six, 16 for the under sixteens, but then the next thing is you're in and around near to, near to the first team. So I started looking ahead and said, look, have a go at right back, speak to Stuart Pierce, if it was Pierce, I said, speak to them, say you wanna I said you you're in a good position at the minute because you're doing so well, you're highly valued there. Listen, just say, I've in a fancy a crack there. But the thinking behind that was really to to then the national team which ended up happening when he was eighteen and made his debut against Holland, did a great job against Iron Robin, and then got a load of caps sort of consecutively. He he, he got into a, you know, it was an incredible rise, really, and all credit to him. And again, you know, again, it's the same thing. It's like if you come onto the Theo Walcott, great family behind him, you know, with his yeah. dad and his mom. Same sort of thing. It's a, To build a footballer today... It, it, it's a team effort you know there's nothing much in life you can achieve on yeah. your own but uh, yeah the family can be absolutely vital
0: Should we, can we talk about um, Southampton because you, you had a, a relatively brief spell working with Sir Clive Woodward I think is that right?
1: That's right so when you come on to the football club in Leeds, I got with the soccer school was going pretty good. And we'd ended up worldwide. We eventually ended up on every continent. Um, a friend of mine challenged me and he said, you having this great success with kids, this, one of the soccer school teams from Leeds had, had beat the national team of Scotland right. uh, in a tournament, which was great. And he said, why don't you see if you can carry this through onto adults? So I looked at buying two or three clubs in Leeds, Geisele, Farsley I looked at and, Garforth had a fairly new stadium. It was near to our office at the time. So went for Garforth. But in that period that followed that, um, Sir Clive Woodward went on the hunt around the world for a coach to work with him for this project he'd been given from Rupert Lowe at Southampton. Yeah. And asked to meet me. And initially, I wasn't that keen on meeting him. Not because I didn't, I didn't perhaps know what he was going to ask me because the Southampton thing hadn't been publicised. But I just was very much a man on a mission. And even Clive had just mm-hmm. won the Rugby World Cup, but I was kind of, I was in a strange character in them days. I didn't have much, you know, I wouldn't have really stopped to have met anyone, but he persisted and I met him. And over the next year, we get to know each other and start working in the background. And he persuaded me to to go to Southampton, which initially we were to run the reserve team. Uh, he would punitively be given a title performance head of performance director and me myself, head of sports science. And then the idea was, was for us to have the first, to run the first team, uh, after Harry and Clive had got in with Mark Palios, who was head of the FA at the time, who had offered Clive the job of performance director there at the FA. And, um, so yes, we, uh, we began on that, but there was, you know, even to have a sports science a head of sports science in a club, it was fairly early days for that type of thing. Yeah, and there was, you know, there was we had, Dave, you know, again, Dave's a good lad, but we had Dave Bassett at the club. Harry Redknapp, Dennis Wise on the playing staff. Dave, Dave,
0: the, Dave Bassett was there at the time, was he?
1: Dave was assistant, so it was a oh, real culture clash.
0: Wow, that is so. You got Harry Redknapp and Dave Bassett, yeah. and then you yeah. got you and Sir Clive Woodward. From the polar opposite of the, of the of the kind of technical spectrum. No offense to those guys, but I mean, come on. Well,
1: yeah. I mean, there was Harry had Jim Smith with him, and he was going to leave, and I was keeping close tabs on it strategically because I thought, uh, it, to be honest with you, when Clive put it to me, I, I, I said no a fair few times because I couldn't see it working. And you know, meet and I meet Rupert and this that and the other, and a lot of talking going on, but then. If we had the reserve team for a year and could have done all right with that, uh then maybe there's a, a chance you can, people are going to accept you jumping in towards mm. first team level. So that yeah. that was the plan. But the things started getting muddy. And I remember one day I was on my bicycle, but I must've had some ear, earphones or some device with my phone. And Rupert Lowe called me when I was driving into Leeds. It was about five, six miles driving, cycling in. And he said, Clive's at the Lions, which I knew he was, and it was wherever he was, it was the, the middle of the you know what I mean, middle of the night. Yeah. He said, uh Harry's trying to bring in Dennis Wise for two grand a week. Sorry, he's trying to bring in Dennis Wise and I said, I wouldn't do it. I said, That's just gonna to add to the sort of and he said, Well, I can't get hold of him. I said, Well, we've already we've got Dave Bassett in now. I said, Dennis Wise is coming in as well. I said he said, Well he's only he's gonna come for two grand a week. It's hard for me to say no, but I, When I look at it, it, if Harry, yeah, they ended up with, you know, it was, as you say, the culture clash. And and even before I went, I thought this is now a mountain to climb, really. We've Mm. got Harry, he's a bit old school. We've got Dave Bassett. We've got Dennis joining. I don't know. So Dennis was
0: joining joining the coaching staff, was he?
1: He wasn't. He was a player, but he'd already been manager by that point of uh, Millwall. Okay. So you know that he wasn't going to be a normal player, if you know what I mean. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. And again, Dennis is forward-thinking himself, and that was prejudiced of me to, to be prejudging him. But yeah, uh, obviously, if there's if there's dispute or something like that, he's he'd be jumping to their side maybe rather than ours. Yeah,
0: yeah, of course, that's 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 really interesting though, because I guess it's a bit like you know back in the sort of mid '90s where you were trying to pitch and and champion these different training methods, you were, you were finding that resistance with the guess the establishment at the time, and then suddenly, you know, eight years on or nine years on from that. <clears throat> you're kind of in a similar situation, really, where you're, you're the kind of progressive, uh, you know, modern kind of, uh, kind of method champion and then you're, you're, you're pitched into a situation with, you know, Harry Redknapp, obviously a hugely successful manager. I don't mean to kind of disparage him at all, but, you know, probably slightly old school, I think it's fair to say. That must have been, that must have been quite a challenge.
1: Because of those battles I'd had with the establishment, mm. by that point, I was not that much in the mood to be messing about a lot more. And I went into Southampton far too, too, what we'd say where I'm from in the northeast, like a bullet a gate. And I went in far too aggressive. Somebody in a book wrote that I, you know, it was, I sort of more or less turned up in a demolition truck, but I was not in the mood for a lot too more debate or this, that and the other. Rupert told me what he wanted at the club. The football more or less from the 21s down was going to be my responsibility and with a first team shortly, Clives. and I wanted to t- help turn it into a proper club, a club like I'd seen in, in that worked hard, like Bielsa has now at Leeds.
2: Mm.
1: A club like in South America, I saw a club yeah. training two, three times a day. So Clive set about it, we had we changed the training ground and had a, you know, we we put plans into place to build a place. What got what that got built, where players could be there all day. We could have them around more. We put training in Cleo um, Walcott Be- uh, Dexter Blackstock Leon Best Martin Craney uh, Nathan Dyer all them lads used to start with me at 7 o'clock in the morning. Um, we'd have a session at seven, half 7 they'd then do one with Harry or if they were with Stuart um, or George rather if they were in the, if they were do, training with the scholars but we'd train them on a the night as well. Yeah. So yeah, there was a lot of resistance, but uh, I was not I was not too uh bothered about that. I just got on with it. But there was some, you know, tough words at time and a few shoutings and arguments and but I got on with it and it became more or less it was fine. I always remember Brian Clough, which I'm certainly no Brian Clough and I wasn't even a manager at the time, but Brian Clough said you're never as strong in a in a club. Uh, you're never as strong as in your first three months in a club. If there's okay. things to be done, if you want to get things cleared out, do it then. I yeah. possibly took that a bit too literally. And I was actually <laughs> friend, friends with Brian's son, Simon, at the time. Yeah. And I went to see Simon after Southampton. He said, that didn't last long. I said, it lasted longer than your dad at Leeds. <laughs> 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 I went to see him in his newsagent shop. Um, he, used to give me good, he used to give me good advice, Simon, on different things. But um, yeah. I, I think being from, yeah, being from, I don't know what, being from Middlesbrough, I probably... I was very Clough-influenced and I, w- I went in there too hard. But what happened in the end, I did some press and it was me saying basically that the players, and you know, in general football players are not fit enough, which they aren't, which mm. proved, you know, where we are today wasn't where we are then. Yeah. Like the, the non-league club I owned were infinitely better conditioned, better cardiovascular than Southampton. But I did an article, it wasn't such a bad article, but it was an article and somebody pinned it on all of the players' uh, lockers.
2: Right, okay.
1: And there was this, that and the other going off and it just became a bit bit difficult. But the young players, I kept in touch with many of them and you know, we give Gareth Bailey's debut in the reserves. Uh, we had Lalana, Theo, uh, a wonderful bunch of young guys who actually backed us to the hilt, they said, would say to us, Bestie would say to me sometimes at a reserve match, oh, I'll feel sorry for you. I said, Why? Or oh, Nathan Dyer said to I said, Well he said they all hate you. they all hate you everyone's against you. <laughs> I says, Well, I said you're not you're not dumb, but all right. <laughs> oh it was it was uh crazy looking back. But yeah. I think we we installed some good habits with them kids. I remember Nathan Dyer went on a loan to Burnley quite a long time. It was um I, I was I went into my office in Leeds and somebody said, Nathan Dyer's rang, I said, All right. I'll ring him back. So I rang him back. I said, how are you doing? I said, I see that you scored last night because I noticed in the gym, reading the paper on the bike, he'd scored. He said, yeah. I said, "Oh, you're doing well. He said, yeah, I'm not happy. happy." I said, why? He said, we're not training. I said, what do you mean? He said, we're on a day off. I said, well, you played yesterday. He said, but you told us if we're not going forwards, we're going backwards. He said, well, you were doing two, three times a day. Now, when I met Nathan, he was one of the most difficult to persuade to get going with this twice a day, three times a day. And to get that call for him said a lot. Yeah, yeah. yeah.
2: Something I'm quite intrigued by is, uh, obviously there you've mentioned quite an amazing group of players that you had. Uh, I mean, that included Lallana and Bale, who are now Champions League winners. Uh, At the time, was it obvious that they were very good? Or did anyone particularly stand out to you or or didn't?
1: Uh, Yeah, the ones that... It's often what you find with players and what you find in life. The ones that stand out in that age, invariably, are not the ones that will come through because they're getting a lot of praise... Getting a lot of, um, you know, affirmation from self affirmation or people around them telling that, yeah, you're doing good, you're doing good. So the ones that stood out at that time, Gareth Bale never even, the special group we got given to work with on the morning, Bale didn't even get put in it uh, initially. And that was the group that we were given was essentially that which was going to be the Southampton first team in two years to come if we went with a very young team. So it was Martin Craney. Dexter Blackstock, David McGoldrick, Theo Walcott, Nathan Dyer, Leon Best, uh, Matty Mills, one or two others I'd be missing off. Lalana didn't make that cut and nor did um, Bale. But we, so it was up to them to work their way into that group and that was the carrot to them. So Clive and I would take this little group, we'd take them around Clive's apartment, Clive would show them this trophy Johnny Wilkinson had won and we were trying to say to them, You can be a Johnny Wilkinson of football. Let's forget Pelé. Let's forget Maradona. We didn't have Ronaldo Would come through at that point. Let's look to be better. What's the work we need to do to do that? But the other guys, Bale, as I say, um, with Stuart, we give our debut to in the reserves and had Lovana playing with us in the reserves. But they didn't get into that group. But I always thought with Gareth Bale, he shared a room with Theo at the lodge, the place where they all stayed. And I think that Bale wanted to be... Bale was... I described Gareth Bale as on the outside looking in. He'd only just got his scholarship by the skin of his teeth. The cool kids were not not him. (laughs) And I just mentioned in a recent uh, podcast I did like this, everywhere I used to look in Staplewood, Gareth Bale was always there looking at me. And I wanted to get in this group. And Theo, his roommate, was in it. And if you think Clive Woodward, who they were training with as well, was a big, you know, it was only this is only not too long after Clive's won the Rugby World Cup. So, yeah, you, you wouldn't have, yeah, so so who stood out? Leon Best stood out. Leon Best stood out a mile. Theo Walcott for his pace. A load we had to do. Technically, I explained that to Theo and we set about it. But it's never, it's, you've, you. I say it to players today. I work with some young players today among the best in the country of their age. And I say to them, be very, very careful. Be very, very careful. Because it is nigh on impossible to sustain the level you're getting. You're you're at the minute when you get the pats on the back, the sponsorships, this, that, it's difficult. So that, what you you saw with Bale, I've seen that throughout my nearly 30 years now. Mm. The ones that come to the front when it actually counts are often not the ones there at the you know 15 16 17
0: yeah and you, when you when you look at like the england under 21s over the years for example you know how many of those squads of players how many kind of went on to to really star for the the full england team probably not that many actually is it um and 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 often those kind of players as you just said who really shine from the from an early age and this massively overhyped don't quite hit the mark and and then as you say gareth bale sort of comes from from nowhere i guess and becomes one of the, the great players in the world.
1: Yeah, I mean, Gareth at the time, he didn't have, I'd say he didn't have a lot of distractions. Some of the other guys got girlfriends fairly early. <laughs> um, you know what I mean? They're into clothes and this and that. And yeah. in fact, there you go back to Janino. I met Janino 22, 23. He's South American player of the year. He just wore the same stuff yeah. all the time. Yeah. I think it was some, what somebody had given to him free, a company called on Bongo. <laughs> his, his dad sat on him. If he'd have wanted to get into anything Like, uh, you know, that's not going to be helpful to his career. It wouldn't have been allowed. I once knocked on. I once knocked on his door. He came down the stairs in his Brazil number ten shorts. He'd been on a computer game (laughs) because he was Brazil number ten, but wearing a little green t-shirt. His dad bollocked him for being late uh, (laughs) down the the stairs to me. When I I worked with Michael Owen, I worked with Michael Owen at age nineteen. I did a book with Michael and. TV series and some stuff. Michael's dad Terry was was his dad, yeah, and would still have a word with him if. And this sort of thing can be important because if not, you know about the twenty ones there. People get ahead of themselves. It can. Ha- it happens to us all. Yeah. Um, in my my working life, myself in my thirties, I went totally off course. Or, so, you know, poor poor young, you know, young players. It's so they need help. Need help and structure around them. And they need, they need people keeping their feet on the floor.
0: Can we just talk about Garforth quickly? Because you touched on it pre, a moment or two ago. Um, so Garforth was like, a, what, is it a kind of an experiment to see if you were able to translate your your the kind of youth coaching methods into the adult game?
1: Essentially, yeah. And we, we also had... That many um, kids starting to come through from our soccer schools, Um, you know, not sort of senior players, but people of 14, 15 that maybe were not able to get access to professional academies because they didn't want those type of players at the time. Yeah. Skillful players or smaller players, even. So, a bit of an outlet for them. Um, Also, the city we were in, in Leeds, it just had the one club, which was Leeds United. So yeah, I was I was quite serious about Garforth, but what sort of threw it a bit was the Southampton thing because a year after buying Garforth, we got the you know it was we were I think step we were like nine, eight or nine promotions Just to put it in context. I think uh, three or four off the conference, no, maybe four off the conference hmm. and another four off you know to get to the top level of, of football mm. and I set some lofty ambitions but my hope was to, to make it at least a league club right okay. and but we set off well we got two promotions in the first two seasons that we did it
2: yeah um,
1: like I said to you before Southampton I wasn't going to go because I couldn't see it working I could mm. see us getting somewhere with Garforth. yeah but I think by the time I came away from Southampton I'd had all of these fights with the FA I'd left my job as a teacher. I'd done this, I'd done that, I'd done the other, but that had a big effect uh, on me. Yeah. And you know, oh, I yeah. take responsibility. Most of it was self-inflicted. I was, I was far too uh, aggressive at the time, and I was far too impatient and yeah. un, unthinking about, you know, other people around me. And even, you know, even get even. Yeah, I was, I was very young, and I was, I was, I was driven, but too, too driven.
2: Yeah. Yeah.
0: Too, too inspired by Brian Clough you, you obviously hmm. but just to go back to Garforth, you, you, you obviously got Socrates and was it Correca as well you...
1: yeah so yeah Socrates came uh, just before I went to Southampton in the year you know, we got the first promotion he came to help me promote the whole project yeah and turned out for us on a very memorable day what a, what a, what a, what a, what a moment. man he was
0: perhaps unique in football history never to be forgotten by the thousands who turned up to marvel to pay tribute or just to see the great socrates a samba superstar at garforth town from the mighty maracana to Wheatley park it's still one touch stuff and he still wants to direct the play but he spent most of the game on the bench
1: a year or so later Correca, who i'd also met up with in brazil he came up he came over and um yeah we would have we had plans for for more of those and Janino, in fact when he finished his career with um he went back to his original club Janino, to finish his career at tuano okay. and um we signed him from there and got in, at international clearance and that was going to happen other than uh Giannino actually took on took on becoming the president of that club right. and had to turn had to turn out for them right. in order to save them from relegation, which is international clearance was held by Garforth. So that <laughs> normally take, takes a month to get back. We got God. it done by a very kind guy at the FA in two days and he scored to keep them up.
2: Wow, what a great story. So there was
1: him. We, we had a go for Romario and agreed <laughs> 100 grand for him and no. for Cafu at one point. The problem with why the Romario didn't happen, he paused it I think this was about 2000 and maybe six. He paused it because he was he paused agreeing with it with us because he was on the verge of scoring what he thought was a thousandth goal, and he didn't want that to be doing it at right. with us, so we, we could do it after that. And then Cafu, <laughs> we <Wow. laughs> um, he was he was finishing up in Italy, and we dealt with um, Carlos Alberto Torres, the Brazil captain, with Carlos's son. Carlos Alessandre
0: yeah,
1: and that nearly happened. We got together some money off a sponsor for, um, yeah, amazing, so, good, good, yeah. uh, good, good memories of, of you know uh, being able to put people a smile on people's face, bringing guys like that over.
2: So uh, a few years ago, you set up a company called Integer Football, which is based around the idea of building and honing, I guess, the footballer of the future. Could you just explain the concept behind that and how it came about?
1: I used to say, "Let's create the player the world has not yet seen." Those were my words. The player that doesn't exist, and I'd, I'd say to them, "It's going to need this." And maybe the parts I came up with was were about 14 or 15, and to a large extent, that's what Ronaldo. I was going to did. say, to extent- uh,
0: were, you, were you were you describing Ronaldo before Ronaldo happened?
1: a lot to a large extent but I think I would have I would have even described him where he would have he would have been a little bit better defensively as well and you could say well you know that might take away from his I don't know yeah but it he, he was more or less as, as we got with him. So then in, in the, the latter years I started to the games changed so much the surface the the surface that we play on has changed the training has changed the training environment, the training grounds. Tactics, foreign coaches, and so I decided to postulate: What's the next? What? Wh- where do we go next with it? If you look at the minute, speeds are increasing by about three percent a year. Distance covered is increasing by about three percent a year. It is not getting any slower. The gaps on the pitch are getting smaller. Players are training far more. Finally, finally yeah. training yeah. far more. Yeah. Finally, and. Um, so thinking towards that, so I started with a little list. One day I actually, I, I began this, this doing it on a train one day and I thought, well, maybe I'll come up with, I don't know, a bike before I'll come up with 12 or 13, mm. And I had about 30, not, in, not on that one day, but over a period of a, a couple of weeks. Mm. And I kept at it for months. And then got to what you would call a saturation point where whatever I was coming up with, it wasn't different to, to, to that which I'd already got mm. and there was nothing new coming out. And so I, I thought, well, maybe there's going to be 56 60 So I did it all up and, yeah, there was 132. <laughs> oh, and at the same, And 60% probably psychological yeah. characteristics or what I'd say prerequisites of the future elite footballer. And, yes, you're not going to need all of them and you're not going to – but I, I was trying to uh, – Imagine something that hasn't yet existed again, but has got. And, and looking at what you need, being the twenty-four hour professional, what you need in terms of your lifestyle and just all aspects. So that ended up at about one hundred and thirty-two. Wow! In the years that followed, it got a bit further. It's nearer to one fifty now. And at the same point, I got working with players again. People, some people were asking me, "Would I work with this guy? Would I work with some some people I knew from the past and different?" people I knew from football ex players um, recommend somebody to me so I started working with individuals and was enjoying it and I suppose I used my list as a bit of a basis I mean they're obviously all those parts are not as important as some of them would not be relevant at all to younger players and so I started working towards that and had some degree of success and so a group of younger players the last couple of years and then working with professionals as well so in a formal sense now I work with a football agency up here in Yorkshire and I mentor all of the players that 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 they have and you know there's Premier League players and so it's a very happy life. Just, just we haven't got much
0: more time with you, I know, Simon. So just want to really quickly talk to you about the film consultancy work you've been involved in. Bend it like Beckham, I think, and um, anyone, Jimmy Grimes. I'm sorry, I haven't seen the film, so Grimbles, Grimbles, apologies. Grimble, apologies. Yeah. So how has that kind of come about? Because do you know what? One of my pet hates growing up was watching football in films, and it's just so unbelievably bad. <laughs> yeah. um, and 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 having seen Bend it like Beckham, it's refreshingly. Uh, accurate actually so I wonder how, how that kind of came about um, um, and how you go about trying to teach somebody how to like act football
1: yeah well it came about 1998 I did a piece for Channel 4 on the work I was doing at the time in Leeds and I said on the piece we need to get away from this thinking that people are born to play football mm. good or not it can be developed and taught like anything else and even that at the time was the fact of practice making you better in football was even not a, not a common notion, believe it or not. And I would think, well, why do people think anybody gets better at golf or at, yeah. Yeah. you know, these poor people who lose the use of their arms, yet they can do paintings with their feet. They didn't have that ability, yeah. that level of, you know, yeah. fine motor skill in the feet at the beginning, I think. Yeah. Dear me. So I did, I did this piece on Channel 4, and a, a lady got in touch with me following, she said, we're from PAFE, a film company, yeah. And we're doing a film with Robert Carlyle and Ray Winston that's out in I don't know what it was, a year. The lad that we've cast, uh no, she wasn't from Pafe, it was the production company. She said Pafe is pulling the money because he can't play football. They've been and seen him and the whole thing's sort of coming down. We've seen you say on T V you could turn anyone into a footballer. Yeah. Would you be able to help us? And I said, if he's got two arms and legs, then <laughs> I would not too bad. Yeah, maybe I maybe I could. Yeah. Um so I think they gave me about fifty grand to work with, in which at the time we didn't really have anything. Yeah. So before I got Lego sponsorship and all the rest of it, that money from Jimmy Grimble was vital in, in us starting to build an organisation. Oh, so right. I met Lewis McKenzie, who played Jimmy Grimble. Yeah. And was he I was he that him, bad? Was he that bad? I, well, when I met him, I regretted <laughs> what I <I'd> said. <laughs> um, but we set about it, maybe training eight hours a day. We had three months, and the film didn't. You know, change the world. But we got a couple of great reviews. One in Empire magazine said, "Credits to Mackenzie for proficient performance, as he was no doubt cast due to his unbelievable ball skills fields." Another review Amazing. said, "If it's getting the victory, might have had Pelé this guy. You know, so good." That led to Bend It Like Beckham, which yeah, it was a bit of a similar situation. Garinda Chadder had no money. She didn't understand much about filming football, and didn't understand that the girls that she was cast couldn't do the stuff that they were yeah. writing down in the script so yeah. I, I agreed to work for that for free oh right and did, so i did that for about five months and yeah. then i choreographed that for them which i've done jimmy grimble as well oh, amazing. that led to one in america will ferrell oh Johnny we, we have to ask gone. yeah
0: we have to ask you about this so obviously will ferrell owner or majority shareholder i don't know what exactly the title is of la fc now big big football slash soccer fan was that was he a football fan before that film, or was was did the film play some part in his kind of?
1: Not like, sure. I didn't have too much to do with right. Will at all. Okay. My main job was to coach the two kids, the two Italian kids who were the main stars. and okay. Not sure. Okay. Uh, let's say
0: let's say it did then. Let's say you're responsible for his. <laughs> could uh, have done. Yeah. My
1: only contact with him really was once sharing a lift with him. Oh okay. <laughs> not not too much on the pitch at all. I was more with the the players in that yeah. one. Yeah. Um. So did that did. After that, the Damned United, which I enjoyed from a cluffy point of view. Oh yeah, bad. Uh, David, you know, peace helped me to get that. who Was the author? Yeah. Uh, coached them, and then I did the English game last year. And along the way, there's there's other ones I've been offered, and I'm not sure I would ever do when I do one again. I've done five. I think I've done more or less. Yeah. Works out about one every, every. I don't know. I've done one one in the nineties, one in the two thousands or two yeah and yeah. it' be spaced out but it take it takes a lot of time and you put you put you put your all into it, but when you say how do you go about it it's just like coaching a player okay. and when you get Kira, Kira or Mindy or if you get one of the guys on the English game, if they've never played football before, then it's essentially like beginning with a three four year old and you do the sort of stuff you might do with them wow Crikey. but you give them a lot and you give them a little bit of a program and um, yeah. into it. It's uh, uh, Yeah. Yeah, so I've enjoyed doing them. Yeah,
0: yeah, yeah, that's great. Just really quickly before we let we let you go, we've got to talk to you about football shirts. Um I, you understand I think you might have let slip that you you are a bit of a collector, is that is that right?
1: I am a collector, yeah.
0: Okay, what sort what what kind of shirts are we talking about in your collection? And which is your most treasured?
1: Um, my most treasured oh Well, I started collecting them. It, my collection I've never really sort of put it out there and showed it. My collection is around Brazil and Middlesbrough. Um, yeah. Anything Brazil, whether it was training kit, that's sort of you know match one player stuff. Oh wow. um, Players' actual shirts, Middlesbrough shirts that are that that are players that are around the area era that i support supported and had my most enjoyable seasons as a supporter but also on brazilian players and some of the clubs they played for so i got a lot yeah. of milan stuff through uh, a contact they yeah. had a lot of brazilian players there ronaldo ronaldinho was there cafu was obviously there kaka
0: wait these are match. Um, these are match worn
1: no not always not always no but some of its training kit and things like oh. that it's you know, match. What would you call that? Would you call that match issued? No. Uh, like, no, not match issued. Um, I'm, anyway, I'm not sure, stuff, but yeah, yeah, players, yeah, yeah, proper, yeah. Stuff yeah. The, proper stuff that the players get. Okay, and what um, is what is
0: your most treasured item?
1: Treasured. Um, well, I'd say it was probably actually a shirt that Micah Richards gave me, which right. isn't something I collected, but yeah. it, it represented hard work from him. Um, it represented a dream and goal setting and all of that so I think he gave me one from one of his matches that he maybe played against Greece that's, so that means something great. a lot of the other stuff I have not asked I've never really asked players for it because I've always felt that's a bit Yeah. you know if you know someone you know someone you you, you know them because they're friends you don't really want gear off them so I've tended to buy the other stuff at one point in the 2010s, 11s I was very bad for it and was you know sort of yeah, buying everything that moved either from companies that were set up there or <laughs> yeah, 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 eBay. So I calmed it all down, but I've I've got yeah, so that that would be. Yeah. Other than that, it would be a well, it's it's my own sort of thing as well. But maybe Socrates shirt from Garforth.
0: Oh wow, you've I'm got that. About, yeah, I was oh. actually
1: thinking of giving that to the National Football Museum, which I might do because it was oh, obviously a yeah. Brazilian captain playing in England. I might do that.
0: Yeah, that's amazing. Wowzers. That's a, we love that show. Actually, Andy, we were looking at it the other day, weren't we? Saying that's a, that's a, that's a great yeah, show. Yeah. It's had the Lego sponsor, didn't so, it? Isn't it? Mm, yeah. Brilliant. That's great. Simon, thank you so much for your time and for telling us your, I mean, bizarre at times, but mm. a fascinating football story that um, covers so many different things. So, really appreciate your time and um, really great to speak to you.
1: Josh and Andy, thank you both very much. God bless.